This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Happy New Year and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We have an exciting episode for you this week, episode 258, entitled How Proverbs Chapter 8 Influenced New Testament Christology. If you've been a regular listener, you know the drill. We are working through the Hebrew Bible in order to understand the passages that impacted and influenced those early Jews and Christians that were anticipating the Jewish Messiah in order that we can better understand what they were looking for in regard to the Messiah's role, his person, his characteristics, and his relationship with the God of Israel. We've been working through Proverbs. We looked at Proverbs chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 3, and we saw how the figure of wisdom personified, that is the personification of God's wise interactions and his instructions to his creation, how this personification influenced the person of Jesus. And when we move today into our target passage, which is Proverbs chapter 8, we're going to see that personification turned up to volume 100. It's going to be the strongest personification of wisdom that we have within the Old Testament. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, to what extent is the figure of wisdom personified in Proverbs chapter 8, and why is that extremely important? Second, how does wisdom relate to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and why does this important distinction matter? Third, What characteristics of personified wisdom were picked up and used by the New Testament authors to describe Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? And lastly, how does the preexistence of personified wisdom affect how we interpret similar language that is used of Jesus in the Gospel of John? Well, let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a close look at the figure of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. So the entirety of the 8th chapter is dedicated to describing the preeminent position of God's wisdom. And it's spoken primarily in the first person. Wisdom comes on stage and takes the mic, per se, and wisdom starts to speak. And we get the longest exposition and dialogue of wisdom speaking to her listeners, to her audience, and wisdom is speaking in the first person. And this is remarkable because wisdom is a personification. It's very important as we continue to work through this study to remember that a personification is not the same thing as a conscious person. By depicting God's wisdom, that is his wise insight and his instruction as a personified female figure. This is not to say that there was an actual woman, a female person, conscious, talking, thinking female person alongside Yahweh in heaven in the beginning. 
That would be to misunderstand what a personification is at the most fundamental level. So now that we understand the function of personification, let's move into our passage. I think it's best for this passage to comment on the noteworthy parts as we read through it, as opposed to reading through it once and then going back and commenting on it afterwards. So Proverbs chapter 8, let's start in verse 1. Does not wisdom call, and understanding lift up her voice? On the top of the heights, beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. That's the first three verses. So we can see here, again, wisdom is understood in its parallelism as understanding. Wisdom calls, understanding lifts up her voice. So even understanding gets personified here. And wisdom is clearly presenting herself as accessible. She is out in the public. She is beside the way, where the paths meet, at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, beside the gates. She is out there in public. She is accessible. Her listeners can actually reach her and find her. She is not some sort of esoteric hidden wisdom that is difficult to find, difficult to understand, something that God is only reserving for the select, intelligent, elite few. No, wisdom is something that is quite accessible and public. And we can see here that wisdom is taking a particular role. She is wearing the hat of a prophet. And if I'm going to take the personification seriously, I should say that wisdom is actually a prophetess. She's functioning as a prophet, the one who is calling and speaking out. She is a spokesperson for the true God. What does she say? Verse 4, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, take wisdom. So you see here again, wisdom is paralleled with prudence. It's something to be understood. It's something to be taken. It's something to be listened to and acquired and held onto. She continues in verse 6. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness, and there's nothing crooked or perverted in them. That's verses 6 through 8. And we can see the extent of wisdom's personification becomes much greater. Here she is personified as actually having bodily features. She has a mouth. She has lips. And what's also interesting to point out is that wisdom becomes closely associated with the word of God. How do we know this? Because she has things that are spoken from her lips. Her lips reveal right things. Her mouth speaks forth truth. And her mouth declares the utterances of God. And so not only is she portrayed as speaking with a personified mouth and the mouth's lips, but also she is characterized as speaking forth the words and the utterances of God, and it's 
quite easy to see how in the first century personified wisdom was understood as effectively a synonym for God's personified word because wisdom effectively did the things that personified word was said to actually do. Wisdom speaks forth the words of God. Effectively, wisdom is functioning as the word of God. This is no surprise because she is functioning as a prophetess. That's going to be very important a little bit later in our study. Verse 9. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. So in verses 9 through 10, we can see that personified wisdom is not only functioning as a prophet, she also is acting in the role of a teacher. She is offering instruction. She calls for people. She summons and invites her audience to take her instruction and her knowledge. And this wise instruction, this wise knowledge, these things are greater than gold and silver. They're more important than what is considered to be the most valuable pieces of monetary gain in the ancient Near East. But in order to portray this, she is functioning as a teacher. So now she's functioning as a prophet and as a teacher. Verse 11, for wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. So we can see a variety of parallels here. Again, we've seen that wisdom and prudence are paralleled earlier in the 8th chapter of Proverbs. And of course, wisdom is closely linked with God's knowledge and God's discretion. And this is indicating that wisdom is so closely linked with these important traits that belong to God. It is God's knowledge. It's God's prudence. It's God's discretion and God's wisdom. They're so closely linked. And it indicates that these things and acquiring these things are much more valuable than jewels and gold and silver. None of those things can actually compare with acquiring wisdom. And again, wisdom is the personification of God's wise interaction and God's wise instructions. Verse 13, the fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom, I am understanding, power is mine. So she identifies herself again with God's understanding. She is closely linked with God's counsel. She possesses God's power, but by offering counsel and understanding, again, she is functioning in the role of the teacher. Then we can see that she starts to influence people in their ability to judge, to rule, and to reign. Look here in verses 15 through 16. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. So the influence of wisdom upon these rulers enables them to function in their capacity 
as rulers, as judges, as kings, and as princes. She enables them to function in that ruling capacity quite well. She's able to make people function as kings and rulers and judges. And that, of course, is going to be important once we look at how this influences the New Testament portrayal of Jesus. So not only is she more valuable than gold and silver and jewels, she also empowers people to rule and reign and decree justice. Verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. That's verses 17 through 18. So she promises that the people who diligently seek her will actually find her. This is a reference to, of course, those who are genuinely interested in believing and taking upon the yoke of her instruction. And then, of course, she indicates that the riches that people are supposed to value as less important when compared to her are the same riches that she actually possesses. She's able to, of course, offer those. She possesses riches, but not only the monetary riches, but also honor. Riches and honor are with me, the enduring wealth, and of course, righteousness. We talked about this before, that the word for honor, the Hebrew noun kavod, was translated into the Greek, and the Greek translation as voksa, the word for glory. So you can see this as riches and glory are with me. Wisdom possesses the glory of God. That's very important. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. So, of course, those who are able to walk after her on this way and on these just paths are going to benefit from her instruction and from keeping with her ways. She promises to bless them monetarily and financially. Now, why is wisdom so important? Why does she possess this preeminent position? Why is she so valuable? The passage is going to turn and it's going to explain why it is that she possesses a preeminent position. And we're going to see that this is directly due to the fact that she has ancient origins. She was there in the beginning when Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. And ancient things, the more ancient something was, was indicative of how valuable it was, according to the ancient Near East. Something that was really, really old was considered to be very, very valuable. Let's look here in verse 22. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. So there's some interesting points we need to look at here in verse 22. There's going to be a few verses here to where wisdom is going to indicate that she has been created by God. And this is important to recognize her role 
and of course her relationship to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, you might not know this, and actually it's unfortunate that many translations don't point this out to the readers, but the verb here, to possess, it might also say to acquire, in verse 22, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way. That verb in Hebrew, the verb kana, means to acquire, but it also means to create. And if you understand that, you can see that Yahweh created me at the beginning of his way makes Yahweh out to be the creator. And wisdom, of course, ascribes that role to Yahweh, and she never takes that role upon herself. She, of course, is indicating here that Yahweh is the true God and the creator, and she doesn't collapse those categories as something that she is now going to possess. And, of course, if Yahweh creates something, he is naturally going to acquire it. So I think both definitions are intended in this particular verb. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yahweh created wisdom, and of course, Yahweh acquired it through that act of creation. Now, she is described here as being created and acquired before his works of old. So before the works of creation, wisdom was with God in the beginning. Verse 23, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So again, not only was wisdom created, but Yahweh established her. Verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. And so here we have another paralleled verb to describe the creation of of wisdom. Here, it's the imagery of a child being born. I was brought forth. And that's going to be repeated in verse 25. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. So four times over the course of verses 22 through 25, we have references to the fact that Yahweh is the creator, and Yahweh has created, established, and brought forth wisdom. This indicates, of course, that wisdom is derived from God. Wisdom comes from God. And it also indicates that wisdom was there before the acts of creation. She was from the beginning. Actually, in the Septuagint, it actually says in the beginning. Wisdom was there in the beginning. When there are no depths, when there are no springs, before the mountains, before the hills, all of these Words are used to position wisdom as prior to creation. She is very, very ancient. And this, of course, helps understand why she possesses a preeminent position. Verse 26. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water could not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman 
and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So here we can see here verses 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30. It's quite clear that wisdom is careful to ascribe the role of creator to Yahweh. He is the one who established the heavens. He inscribed the circle. He made firm the skies. He is the one that set the sea its boundary and marked out the foundations of the earth. He did it, not wisdom. Wisdom is not the creator. She's very, very careful in making this clear. And she says it many, many times using the third person masculine singular to describe acts of creation to where wisdom which of course is a feminine noun in Hebrew, the noun chokmah, she governs feminine verbs. And we can see here that she, in verse 30, was beside him. Personified wisdom, of course, was beside God when he was making all things. This, of course, means that everything that God created was good, it was wise, it was ordered, and we can see that Wisdom being beside him, according to verse 30, she was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And this indicates that she was understood as his delight. She loved him. And of course, this love is reciprocated because she was rejoicing always before him. So wisdom was the delight of God and wisdom rejoiced always before him. So she loved God and God loved wisdom. There was this reciprocal love that was going on during these acts of creation. Verse 31, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So wisdom continues to indicate that she was rejoicing and celebrating. And of course, she is quite clear to indicate that the earth belongs to Yahweh, not to her, because Yahweh is the creator. She was not the creator. And of course, out of all creation, her delight is in humanity, the sons of men, those to whom she appears in public places and makes herself accessible so that they may hear her wise instructions and words. So having established why she is valuable why she is preeminent, and why people need to be listening to her. The rest of Proverbs 8 is going to reorient towards her summons and invitation for people to listen to and obey her. Verse 32. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. So wisdom here is, again, taking the role of the teacher, calling for the children of men to listen to her, to keep her ways, to heed her instruction. And, of course, those who heed the instruction of personified wisdom naturally become like wisdom. They become wise. That's important. She has an effect on those who keep her wise ways. Verse 34, blessed the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. So wisdom is closely associated here with gates and the door. Very important, the gate and the door. We'll see this again in our second section. And she offers blessings to the person who listens to her. And of course, listening implies obeying her. 
to listen means to obey. Verse 35 indicates why that blessing is offered to those who obey her. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. So those who listen to her are going to find life. She is able to impart life and, of course, favor from Yahweh. She again distinguishes herself from Yahweh. However, not everyone is going to listen to wisdom, as we all know. And those who don't listen to her are described in the final verse, verse 36. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. So what we see here is, is an interesting point that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention, but I think it's very interesting. So wisdom is a figure in her teaching that actually divides people. Those who respond to her respond in one of two ways. They either listen to her and obey her instructions and keep her ways, resulting in life, or they don't listen to her, they actually sin against her, resulting in injury and actually death. So not only does wisdom divide, but she actually makes enemies. The enemies are not just those that refuse to listen to her. They actually sin against her. They're actually out to get her. They seek to attack her. They seek to put her to death. But those people are going to reap what they sow. They're going to receive destruction and death and injury. There's a lot of interesting things that are said about the figure of personified wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. And so let's move to our second point, point number two, the influence of Proverbs 8 on the New Testament writers. And I could really come up with 20 different things in this particular chapter that become clear when you study the person of Jesus in the Gospels that indicate that Jesus saw himself as the embodiment of wisdom, as the incarnation of wisdom, and he speaks as wisdom, and he acts like wisdom, and he continues wisdom's wise ministry in his own earthly ministry. That is quite clear, and hopefully as you've been listening to the reading of Proverbs 8, you've been able to make some of those connections in your mind. But I'm not going to go through 20 things. I wanted to offer what I thought were the 10 most important things, but this is admittedly not an exhaustive list. It's also in no particular order. The first thing that I can see in regard to the influence of Proverbs 8 onto the New Testament writers as they portray Jesus is that personified wisdom in Proverbs 8 functions as a prophet and a teacher. And this might seem to be a minor point, but it's actually pretty important because Jesus is deliberately described and illustrated as a prophetic figure and as a teacher. And if Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, if Jesus continues the ministry of wisdom, if he is the climax of wisdom's interaction with the people of God, then naturally he's going to function as a prophet and a teacher, just like wisdom was doing hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So I think that's pretty noteworthy. Number two, we could see that wisdom offers life, and of course Jesus offers life. But wisdom offers life particularly to those who listen to her, to those who obey her. 
and Jesus, of course, offers eternal life to those who listen to him, those who obey him, and those who follow him as his disciples. So it's interesting that that parallel exists, and that's not insignificant. The offering of life is a very important part of wisdom's purpose. Number three, wisdom is closely linked with the gate and the door. We saw in a couple places that wisdom was closely associated with the gates. And we saw at the end of Proverbs 8 that she was linked with the door as well. It's interesting in John chapter 10, Jesus himself says that he is the gate of the sheep. He is the door. And he takes these metaphors for himself because they are metaphors that formally applied to God's wisdom. And Jesus himself sees his own mission as a continuation of what wisdom was actually doing. So those who wait at the gate and at the door are going to find wisdom. And what do they actually find in the New Testament? They find Jesus, who himself acts as the door and the gate. Number four, wisdom is closely aligned with the word of God. In fact, wisdom and God's word effectively are synonyms. And we've already seen in Proverbs 8 some of the initial steps that started to lead in that particular direction. Wisdom possesses lips. Wisdom has a mouth. Wisdom speaks forth God's words and God's utterances and God's instructions. So you can see that wisdom acts as the mouthpiece of God, as the word of God. And so when we see in the prologue of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and that all things are made through God's word, and there are a variety of things that are said about God's word there, we can note that all the things that are said about God's word in the prologue actually have parallels with God's wisdom. Word and wisdom are so closely aligned that everything that's said about God's word in the prologue, you can insert the word wisdom there, and it would all still be true. Because Proverbs 8 started along this path of linking the two concepts. It made more sense for the Gospel of John that was trying to portray Jesus as the mouthpiece of God, the prophet who authoritatively speaks forth the words of God to describe him with the metaphor of word as opposed to wisdom. Word naturally helped to shape Jesus as the spokesperson. And yet, wisdom functions as all of the same characteristics as God's word in every single point of the prologue. So that act of seeing word and wisdom as synonyms is not only there in the prologue, it's already being portrayed here hundreds of years before the Gospel of John was even written in Proverbs chapter 8. The fifth point that we see is the reciprocal love for God. I've noticed in the Gospel of John that Jesus says that he loves the Father and the Father loves him. There's this constant back and forth between the love that Jesus has for God and the love that God has for Jesus is this reciprocal love. Well, we can already see that in reference to wisdom. We see that wisdom is the delight of God, but wisdom is always rejoicing because of God's creation. There is this 
reciprocity in love and rejoicing between God and his wisdom. And yet we could see that again in the Gospel of John in God's reciprocal love for Jesus. Point number six, wisdom possesses glory. I pointed this out last week in our episode involving Proverbs chapter three, where wisdom possesses glory. And we could see in the New Testament that Jesus possesses the glory of God. And arguably, the best and intended explanation of a passage like John 17, 5, to where Jesus speaks of the glory that he had before the world was created, is Jesus seeing himself as the continuation of God's wisdom, personified wisdom, which possesses glory. And of course, wisdom was present before the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so John 17, 5 seems to be intended to be understood in light of a wisdom Christology. And so readers who were familiar with the figure of personified wisdom possessing glory would see that in passages where Jesus speaks of the glory that he possessed with God. Because Jesus is the continuation of personified wisdom's ministry. Number seven, wisdom teaches, and in doing so, she makes enemies. And their choice to sin against wisdom results in death. It's very interesting that Jesus has his ministry, and it basically divides people into two different categories. Those who wish to listen to him, obey him, and believe him, on one hand, and those who don't want to listen to him, but they actually turn out to be his enemies that not just reject him, but they also seek to put him to death. They seek to arrest him. They seek to take him and to kill him and to hand him over to crucifixion. They actually sin against wisdom in a way that results in their death. So the teaching ministry of wisdom creates enemies, particularly enemies that voluntarily choose to sin against wisdom. And it's quite clear that this is the portrayal of Jesus in his teaching that inevitably creates enemies who also want to sin against Jesus and they want to put him to death. Point number eight, wisdom, of course, functions as God's agent. God, of course, possesses the teaching and the wise instruction, and the prudence, and the discretion, and all these different metaphors, the insight. God possesses these things, and God wants to convey these things unto humanity, unto the children of men. But God does it through this agent, the personification of his wisdom, lady wisdom, woman wisdom. And so wisdom is functioning as the agent of God, but Even though she functions as this agent figure, this almost mediating figure, she is very careful to always attribute the role of creator and the role of God to God alone. She is never confused with the God of Israel. She is always understood as the agent, and of course she carries out the functions and the purpose of the agent. And when we see Jesus in the way that Jesus relates to the true God, and the way that Jesus functions as the agent, we can see that all of these traits about wisdom are used of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of John. 
Jesus never claims to be the God of Israel. He always ascribes that to the Father. The Father is the creator. The Father is the one who is the maker of all things, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Jesus never claims those roles for himself. He functions as the agent, and he's always careful to distinguish himself from the true God, whom he claims is the Father and the Creator. So just as wisdom functions as the agent of God, while also attributing the role of Creator to Yahweh alone, Jesus in the New Testament functions as the agent of God, and he, of course, teaches people that the Father is alone the Creator. And in doing so, Jesus continues to function as the wisdom of God. Number nine, we saw that wisdom helps others rule, govern, and judge well. By me, the rulers rule. By me, they govern and they judge well. We can see wisdom saying that. And it's quite clear that Jesus is deeply interested in people ruling and judging and governing well because he is announcing the message of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's kingdom. And in doing so, he is training people so that they can judge and rule and reign well in the kingdom of God. But people are able to judge and rule and govern because of wisdom's influence. And in the New Testament, they do so because of Jesus' influence. Jesus is the person who could say, by me, these people govern and judge and rule well. So the ministry of Jesus, as it pertains to the kingdom of God and preparing people for these roles to govern and judge and rule, of course, relates to his own involvement. And this is true because Jesus himself is the Messiah. He is the anointed king. And the anointed king, of course, has these particular qualities. And naturally, he is the one who's able to influence the ability and the capacity to judge, to govern, and to rule correctly. So that's a point that I think doesn't get enough attention, but I think it's worthy of people's consideration. And lastly, and I think arguably the most important point, is that, number 10, wisdom preexisted in Proverbs chapter 8, and wisdom was present at creation. But, as I've tried to emphasize over and over, wisdom is a personification. So, if Jesus understood himself as wisdom's embodiment, if Jesus is the wisdom that has become flesh, then Jesus' own statements that we see in the Gospel of John that look like statements of preexistence, they need to be understood in light of the fact that wisdom was a personification. For Jesus to see himself as a continuation of personified wisdom is not to say that Jesus consciously existed as that wisdom in the beginning with God. Wisdom is a personification, not a conscious, talking, thinking female person alongside God. Jesus did not pre-exist as a female figure. To say that wisdom was in the beginning with God is to say that God closely possessed is wisdom that he used to create all things 
and to bring about his wise instruction to the world. And God does that through the poetry of Proverbs by personifying this quality, this wisdom, this wise instruction. But Jesus in the Gospel of John does seem to have these phrases where he talks about preexistence. But if Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom, then this preexistence is not a conscious preexistence. It is to say that Jesus continues wisdom's ministry. He is the embodiment, or dare I say, the incarnation of God's wisdom. So the phrases in the Gospel of John that have troubled many biblical Unitarians, such as, I have come down out of heaven, I am from above, the Father sent me into the world, if we read all those as Jesus seeing himself as the continuation of God's wisdom, and God's wisdom, of course, did come down out of heaven. God's wisdom was from above, and God's wisdom was sent into the world. This wisdom, of course, is a personification. And so while there is preexistence, it's not conscious, personal preexistence. It is a preexistence of a personification. So we have to be able to take those things seriously. And this, of course, is just further indicating that the New Testament writers, particularly the writer of the Gospel John, understood Jesus in terms of a wisdom Christology, portraying Jesus Christologically by taking all of the things that were said about the wisdom of God in passages like Proverbs, but other passages as well, and applying them to Jesus. And I think that the New Testament writers did regard Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom, and I even think Jesus himself thought of himself and described himself in terms of this personified wise figure. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we wrap up our study of Proverbs. We'll look at Proverbs chapter 9 and the portrayal of wisdom and also personified folly in that particular chapter, and we'll note how that portrayal influenced and impacted the New Testament writers and their depiction of Jesus. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review, and by sharing your favorite episode with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.